Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Coming to you from New York, New York, this is the official Gilded Age podcast. Hello, thanks for joining us for another episode of the official Gilded Age podcast, your companion podcast to the HBO original series, The Gilded Age. I'm Alicia Malone from Turner Classic Movies, and with me, as always, is my co-host with the most, Tom Myers. (laughs) Well, hello, Miss Malone. Uh, I'm Tom Myers from the Bowery Boys New York City History Podcast, and it is great to be back with you for our eighth episode. Can you believe that? Eighth? No. I don't want it to end. Me neither. Well, last week on the podcast, we spoke about, among other things, electricity and indoor lighting and how it changed New York during the Gilded Age. This week, we've packed up our bags and we're going to join Mrs. Russell in the city by the sea, Newport, Rhode Island. Yes, this was the playground for the rich who built their not-so-humble seaside cottages in the area. Also, later in this episode, we'll be joined by Danae Benton, who plays Peggy Scott and production designer Bob Shaw. So let's get into our recap of episode eight of the series called Tucked Up in Newport, written by Julian Fellows and directed by Michael Engler. Okay, Alicia. Well, episode eight begins not in Newport, but down in New York, where George Russell and his lawyers are discussing his upcoming court hearing about that train derailment. His team have not yet dug up any dirt on Mr. Dixon or or discovered the true origin of that letter that places the blame on George. And George is not happy. He gives that table a serious thumping. Yes, he's obviously frustrated there's no evidence against Dixon, but George's team seems to be working hard when Marion is outside the Russell house. George's stenographer, Miss Ainsley, approaches with papers, and it's a good thing that Marion sees her because later (laughs) Miss Ainsley is at Bloomingdale's and leaves her purse behind. Marion is also there doing some shopping, and here's the shop assistant calling Mrs. Dixon back and offers to return her purse. She hadn't been told Miss Ainsley's name previously, so when she arrives at the Russell's house, she gives Mr. Church and Mr. Russell a different name. (laughs) If you could give it to Mrs. Dixon. Mrs. Dixon? Hello, Miss Brooke. Can I help? I just wanted to drop this off for Mrs. Dixon. Or is it Miss? She left it on the counter in Bloomingdale's and I was behind her in line. The assistant tried to find her, but she was too late. Mrs. Dixon? Your stenographer. I met her when she brought some papers for you and gave them to Larry. She said you had to see them at once. I know. It was just as Larry was leaving for Newport. You must mean Miss Ainsley. She'd bought some gloves and I suppose had charged them to the name Dixon. I'm sorry to bother you with it. You haven't bothered me at all. Quite the reverse. Goodbye and thank you, Miss Brooke. 
Wow, Tom, this was a lucky moment for George. Miss Ainsley has something to do with Dixon, the man who profited from the train derailment. Yeah, that was some fortuitous shopping at Bloomingdale's Great Eastside Bazaar. <laughs> yeah. Uh, actually, we don't really know what's going on here, do we? Is she married to Dixon? Is she just using his name? Well, that all gets cleared up at the courthouse where Miss Ainsley admits she is Dixon's wife and that George's letter was not about a train axle, but rather his response to a quote about a potential office renovation. And Tom, mm. this is an exciting scene. I mean, just the pace of it, the rev- yeah. the revelations, the, the sheer mm. luck of Marion and her glove shopping. It, it's all about the glove shopping. It, <laughs> that is like the best trip to Bloomingdale's ever. I mean, at least for George. And by the way, we heard Mrs. Dixon mention the decorators for that potential office renovation as being the Herter brothers. Who mm-hmm. were they? Well, aside from evidently being very expensive, the Herter brothers, Gustav and Christian, were they were like the go-to interior designers and furniture makers during the Gilded Age. They had a real VIP list of clients that included J.P. Morgan, the Vanderbilts, even President Grant in the White House. Wow. Wow, George, I mean, certainly found them too expensive. And Mrs. Dixon obviously gave George a different name from the start. Yeah, and and once the plot is revealed here in the courtroom, the case against George is suddenly dropped. Uh, Mrs. Dixon does approach George in the courtroom, maybe to apologize, Mm. but she is met by angry George. Yeah, he tells her he will follow her movements and make sure that she can't ever get a good job. Yeah, I think the line is, you may scrub floors to earn your bread, but nothing more. Gosh, I mean, I certainly understand his anger and I am team George all the way, but the threat did seem (laughs) just a little bit harsh. Well, yeah, but I mean, come on, she did falsify a document to place the blame of a train derailment on George. Okay, I mean, Mm. on the list of firing offenses, that's pretty high. Yeah, I guess you're right. (laughs) I also had a bit of an Archie Baldwin flashback in the scene. Remember how he delivered that threat to Archie? It was kind of similar. He said, like, if you ever contact my daughter again, I will make sure you never work in finance again or something. I mean, George can be scary. He can. Well, over at the Van Ryan house, a story plays out about a different letter. Tom Rakes drops off a letter, not for Marion, but for Peggy Scott. Armstrong is very quick to offer to give it to Peggy, and Peggy realises that Armstrong has read the note, which, oh, so frustrating, Tom. I think Armstrong is just such a petty character. Yeah, she can definitely be mean. And Agnes has already told her to, you know, watch her prejudice. I'm certainly not going to make any excuses for her, but we've also seen that her life isn't really great. I mean, she's got her hands full with her sick mother, but yeah, she also seems jealous of Peggy and prejudiced and conniving. I mean, I was just watching the scene and thinking, oh, please, do not give that letter to Armstrong. Yeah, and even Ada has never liked her, as we hear. So. Peggy reveals her secret to Marion and then to Agnes and says she has to go. And we'll get into Peggy's story later on in this episode with Danae Benton, but everyone seems to agree that it should be Armstrong leaving instead, and it should have been. I know. This was kind of frustrating, wasn't it? I mean, at, at first, when Agnes confronts Armstrong, Agnes tells her, you may go, mm. in their sitting room. And at first, 
I thought that that was actually Agnes's way of firing her. Yeah, I mean, I was hoping that would be the case. (laughs) Right, but then Peggy insists that she was going, even though everybody agreed that Peggy should stay. Even Agnes agreed. But ultimately, Agnes doesn't fire Armstrong, and that's because she doesn't want to bother with training a new maid. I mean, that Mm. is the bottom line. But even though Agnes doesn't fire Armstrong, I mean, she is very gentle and understanding towards Peggy. These two have built up a kind of friendship. And I also feel like leaving is probably the best move for Peggy because now she can concentrate on her writing for the Globe and not so much on writing Agnes's letters. True. Although she's now going to have to navigate her rather tricky relationship with her father. Yeah. Oh, just quickly, uh, let's talk about Watson, George Russell's valet. Oh, right. Sad Mr. Watson. (laughs) What does he do all day? Well, it seems like he spends hours standing outside a young woman's house. (laughs) And in this episode, (laughs) she spots him hiding not so subtly behind a horse and calls him over. Uh, It's not really clear what is going on, but we can glean that her name is Flora McNeil and he gives his name as Mr. Collier. She doesn't recognise his face, but she does react to that name. So Mm -hmm. what do we think here? Is she his daughter? Do you think maybe she's the daughter of someone he, he hurt at some point? It's all very mysterious, and she clearly holds the key to some sort of Watson mystery. (laughs) And I guess we'll have to to wait to hear more about that because now we've got to move on to our main subject of this episode, Newport, Rhode Island, where society is building their seaside cottages and looking for ways to entertain themselves. And Mr. and Mrs. McAllister have welcomed Bertha and Gladys to their country home, Bayside Farm. So charming. How long have you been coming here? We have been hiding in Bayside Farm for 20 years at least. But now New York is coming out to find me. No, I suppose they're snapping up all the best lots. There are still some on Bellevue Avenue, which I would recommend. Mm. I gather Mrs. Astor has finished Beechwood. That was a good buy. She didn't have to tear it down. Just add a wing and tidy it a little. I should love to see the house. I'm afraid she isn't in town. What do you do all day? What's the life here? It's much like New York, but with sun and sea for a background. The young go to the casino and play tennis. Can we follow them there? You'd like that, wouldn't you, Gladys? We might see Larry. Of course. Your son is staying with Mrs. Fish. Do you know her well? I don't know her at all, but Larry stayed there a few times. That may be helpful. We'll go to the casino tomorrow. I'll ask Mrs. Fish when she's taking her party. Mrs. Fish will only change the plan ten times and wreck the afternoon. (laughs) Then, my dear, we must persevere. (laughs) Hooray, we're finally in Newport. Kicking back with the McAllisters. And what a view. I know. So let's talk about Newport because I was reading that it had been turned into this luxe locale in the mid-19th century, largely by a land speculator named Alfred Smith and his partner, Joseph Bailey. Yes. Well, they developed Bellevue Avenue, which is where so many of the rich families would build their huge summer homes or cottages, quote unquote. But (laughs) Newport's history goes way back. I mean, the first European settlers arrived in the 1630s and it then became a thriving seaport. It was one of the country's largest and wealthiest in the 1700s. 
And when did Newport become a resort? Well, already in the late 1700s, Newport was attracting summertime visitors uh, from Boston, of course, and New York and Philadelphia, but also from the South. And when its port declined in the early 1800s, the city turned to tourism and began to attract a community of writers and painters and actors and intellectuals. So then by the early 1850s, when the McAllisters bought their farm, Smith and Bailey, who you mentioned, developed Bellevue Avenue south all the way down to Bailey's Beach, selling off the lots for these new summer palaces. And even here in 1882, McAllister is saying that some of those lots were still available. Ready to be bought by someone like Bertha. Yes, by now, during the Gilded Age, New York society was really discovering Newport. It wasn't just for the artists and intellectuals. Okay, but in this episode, we hear Agnes say that she doesn't understand why everyone is going to Newport. She mentions Saratoga Springs in New York as, mm-hmm. as a place that used to be the desirable resort destination. It had been, and it would continue to remain popular. But these resorts were very different. Saratoga Springs was dominated by large hotels, and Newport was becoming the king of the cottage resorts, which seemed much more exclusive. To quote Harper's Magazine in 1854, writing about Saratoga, quote, its unique hotels, its throng, its music, its dancing, its bowling, its smoking, its drinking, its flirting, its drives to dinners and sunsets at the lake are not enough to equal the claim of Newport, which has most of these and more. Saratoga is a hotel. Newport is a realm. Ooh, I like that. (laughs) And Ward (laughs) McAllister had a farm in Newport, Bayside Farm, as he says, and he was a big reason why Mrs. Astor bought a house there and why Newport would become uh, an important part of society life. Yes, he encouraged Mrs. Astor and others in that circle to summer in Newport. Um, And by the way, it might have been called Bayside Farm, but that's like calling these mansions cottages. I don't, I don't really think that Ward McAllister was out pulling weeds in the fields. Um, but, but he and his wealthy wife purchased their property here in the 1850s. And we don't see much of Mrs. McAllister or, or even hear much about her. No, she stays up in Newport alone, you know, while Ward is down in New York escorting Mrs. Astor, who he calls his mystic rose all over town, you know, sniffing out the nouveau riche and making up lists. But I read that she, you know, Mrs. McAllister, was the one who had the money in that marriage. Yes, she was a Southern heiress named Sarah Gibbons, whose grandfather had actually been a partner and a a mentor of Commodore Vanderbilt back in the day. Ward McAllister had pedigree. He was even a distant cousin of Caroline Astor, Mm. but he didn't have the money, okay? He was a trained lawyer, but he wasn't interested in practicing. So... He married very well, and they traveled throughout Europe, where, as we know, he took lots and lots of notes about etiquette and (laughs) dining. And they returned, and he charmed his way into the very top reaches of New York society. Well, I love Mrs. McAllister so far. (laughs) I know. I just love the way how she draws out, you know, tennis. Young play tennis. Yeah, with that little shoulder move. Tennis. <laughs> well, when Mrs. Astor bought her Newport mansion, Beechwood, she, of course, had to add a grand ballroom, which was designed by our favorite, Richard Morris Hunt. 
Who else? Yes. <laughs> and Greg King writes in his book, A Season of Splendor, that after buying Beechwood in 1881, she spent $2 million on those renovations alone. Even if Ward McAllister here jokes that she just had to add a wing and tidy it up. Well, talking about Mrs. Astor's ballroom brings up this notion that Ward McAllister started, I think, the the idea of the 400. So what exactly was that? Because it wasn't really about a list of exactly 400 people, was it? No, only in the popular imagination. McAllister and Mrs. Astor would spend weeks, months, working out, you know, who should be invited to her annual January ball back in New York and later to his patriarch's balls, as well as other balls. So they came up with these rules, standards, for who should be invited. And they proclaimed that it took three generations from the initial creation of a fortune for a family to become accepted into society. Although there is some ambiguity about, you know, exactly when the timer starts. Do you count the original moneymaker? Because mm. if you start with the next generation to get a little distance from it, her husband, William Beckhuster Jr., wouldn't have qualified because he was John Jacob Astor's grandson. Oh, well, that's just a small detail, you know, technicality, nothing to see here. <laughs> well, they are the ones making the rules. Yeah. And uh, in the spring of 1888, so six years after our story here, McAllister would tell the New York Tribune, why, there are only about 400 people in fashionable New York society. If you go outside that number, you strike people who are either not at ease in a ballroom or else make other people not at ease. So that's the 400. Yes. And that story was printed across the country. I found it in the San Francisco Examiner on April 15, 1888. And out of this quote, then, evolved this myth of the 400. It's not the number of people who could fit into Mrs. Astor's ballroom. That's, that is a legend. That's interesting. Well, here, Ward seems to be encouraging Bertha to snatch up a lot on Bellevue Avenue, and she's interested. I love that detail. And, and remember that we know that Bertha's character is at least partially mm. based on Alva Vanderbilt. Mm. And in real life, Alva would get her Newport cottage, Marble House, on Bellevue Avenue. Her husband, William Kissam Vanderbilt, hired Richard Morris Hunt in 1888, mm. and it would be finished four years later in 1892, and it is stunning and, you know, obviously covered in marble. But here's the best part. Elvis' house is located on Bellevue Avenue next door to Mrs. Astor. Oh, something tells me that that's not a coincidence. <laughs> <laughs> and Ward mentions that Larry Russell is staying with Mamie Fish. So where was her mm -hmm. cottage, Crossways? That was on Ocean Avenue, still is today, not far from Bellevue Avenue, uh, very close to Bailey's Beach. He also mentions that they're playing tennis at the casino, a hotspot in town. <laughs> but while it's called a casino, it's not really a casino like we think of in Las Vegas terms. No. No slot machines, no unlimited drinks. <laughs> um, this casino was a social club located in town on Bellevue Avenue that was founded in 1879 by James Gordon Bennett Jr., the publisher of the New York Herald. Uh, it was designed by McKim Meaton White and, and, yes, has some lovely lawn tennis courts. They're still there. And I take it the casino was a place to be seen, to, to show off your latest fashion? Yes, whether or not you were playing 
like Oscar in his snappy jacket and his short tie, yeah. um, or or crash in a party like John Adams here, who just shows up, presumably to flirt with Gladys Russell. And Oscar is not happy. Yeah, what do you think is going on here? I mean, he said, I love you to Oscar in the restaurant in New York, and that wasn't returned. I feel like mm. John is is hurt that Oscar is pursuing Gladys and is just trying to show him how it feels. What do you think? I think he's going for revenge. And, mm. and yes, saying I love you too loudly at the club, I mean, in 1882, that could have really been a record scratch moment. And John says that he's staying at Chateau sur Mer with the Wetmores, another yep. rich family, I presume? Yes, William Shepard Wetmore had built a fortune decades before our show takes place and bought lots of real estate, including land in Newport. And he built his lovely Victorian mansion, Chateau sur Mer, along Bellevue Avenue in the 1850s. Wow, so many, many years before these other big houses. Right, yeah, it was one of the very first big mansions to go up on Bellevue Avenue. And it would even get larger in the 1870s when the next generation of Wetmores would hire, <laughs> you know who, to redesign it. Richard Morris Hunt. <laughs> With snaps, yes, who else? <laughs> uh, the, the work was finished in 1880, so John Adams would have been staying there in style. Doesn't surprise me, but now let's cut back to New York to the Van Rynes kitchen. Ah, uh, yes, because it seems like Bridget has had a change of heart about Jack, especially mm. once, you know, she sees him heading out the doors with flowers for somebody. And so she trails him pretty poorly <laughs> all the way to a cemetery. By the way, this is the second time that we've seen somebody really do a bad job of trying to be discreet. Yeah, first Mr. Watson and now Bridget. Didn't you love how she was hiding behind a tree? <laughs> not, not, not very subtle. subtle. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but I think I think that many of us can relate to what Bridget is feeling at this moment because, you know, there's sometimes there's those people that you can't be with for whatever reason. Here it seems that Bridget mm -hmm. is dealing with childhood trauma, but you you kind of don't want them to be with anyone else, even though it's selfish. Yeah. Well, I mean, we also realize that Bridget's not the only one who's suffered trauma. Jack has lived through his own tragedy. Here he is telling Bridget about the loss of his mother. I visit every week in the month of her birthday. I used to laugh at my old pa for coming, but now he's gone and here I am. It's funny, huh? Not so funny. Do you have any brothers or sisters? Two brothers, but we lost touch. You must miss your pa. Not really. We weren't close. The last person to love me was the woman who's not in that grave. I'm sure that isn't true. No, you aren't. This is a very sad scene. I know, poor Jack. And he goes on to talk about the Peshtigo fire of 1871, which... I assume, was a real event. Yes, it started on October 8th, 1871, uh, the same day as Chicago's Great Fire, which did cause it to be somewhat overlooked. I was reading a New York Times from the next week, and there was a small article about it on the front page, but the main story, most of the front page, was still about the Chicago Fire. But the Peshtigo Fire was larger and deadlier. Uh, it burned several communities, 
and more than a million acres, and it killed, it's believed, more than 1,200 people, maybe mm. even twice that number. Oh, gosh, that's awful. It's it's interesting that the show is choosing to highlight uh, a lesser-known fire, which I, I guess is helpful to signal to us that there were more fatalities during this time than uh, widely talked about today. Yes, and there were many other fires that month, too. It was an exceptionally windy and dry period. Oh, so that's all happening down in New York. But meanwhile, up in Newport, Mrs. Fish is throwing a little dinner party and Bertha has been invited along with her son, Larry, her daughter, Gladys, Aurora Fain, John Adams and Oscar Van Rijn. And just before dinner, Bertha receives the good news that George has been exonerated. What's this, Mrs. Russell? Good news from New York. Has your husband got off? No, no. He just wanted to wire me how well things are going and send his best wishes to all of you. Hmm. So tell me, Mr. McAllister, have you persuaded her to buy a place here? Or better still, to build one? I can only show Mrs. Russell the options. I would not claim to have persuaded her to do anything. She's tenacious. I'll give her that. Smile and take it as a compliment. It is a compliment. If you knew the number of times she's pretended I didn't exist. And now here I am at her table because I'm tenacious, just as she said. So I picked up a book by Deborah Davis called Gilded, How Newport Became America's Richest Resort. And she writes about Mamie Fish saying, quote, Mamie welcomed disapproval. In fact, she thrived on it. She insulted her friends and snubbed her enemies, hoping to make social life a little livelier. And this is what we see in the show, isn't it? Totally. That was Mamie's role. And yes, she insulted her friends. She once told Alva Vanderbilt that she looked like a toad. (laughs) And they were close. Remember, Ward McAllister says to her in the casino scene, Dear Mrs. Fish, you're so contrarian. Mm Mm-hmm. And she was. I mean, she also hated long dinners. Uh, Dinners at her place usually clocked in at under an hour before the real party began, which was some sort of live entertainment or, yes, some kind of game. And Mamie seems happy here. She's throwing zingers at Bertha from the other end of the table. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, candelabra dodging going on here. (laughs) My kind of party. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Although Bertha also seems a little bit insecure you know, about how she's doing. Mm. But Aurora gives her some encouragement. Absolutely. Well, Bertha is doing well here, but at the Astor house, Mrs. Astor states that she doesn't want anything to do with her, even while her daughter Carrie is excited about the upcoming ball at the Russell's house. Yeah, and and Carrie kind of calls out her mom here in a way that's really like nobody else in the world could call out Mrs. Astor. (laughs) Um, She says... But she's no worse than Mrs. Jay Gould or Mrs. Ogden Mills. Both of whom were real people. Yes, the Goulds were not fully accepted into society. They spent most of their time living in their incredible country estate, Lyndhurst, up in Terrytown. And Mrs. Ogden Mills, with whom Mrs. Astor does associate, was born, as we heard, a Livingston. So finally, we're back in Newport where a rather surprising situation is unfolding. Ward McAllister has offered to take Bertha Russell to see Beechwood without Mrs. Astor's consent. Yeah, this definitely struck me as a rather gutsy move. Um, And clearly, Aurora Fain is uncomfortable about the whole thing. But Bertha is delighted to have this VIP tour. 
She is. And Beechwood is not exactly empty because Mrs. Astor's butler, Mr. Hefty, is there preparing for Mrs. Astor's arrival. So tell us about the servants in Newport, because I assume that some were sent in advance to set up the house. Some maybe came with their employers and and some were there in Newport just working seasonal jobs. Yes, the the town's economy uh, was really dependent on tourism and its summertime residents. And even though most of these houses would just be used for two or three months each year, they did need to be maintained year-round. And then during the summer season, they needed an army of, you know, cooks and maids and footmen and so forth. And just like in New York, because you're living in a mansion as a servant does not mean you're living in luxury. I was reading about the elms in Newport where the owner had a wall built in the servants' quarters so they could not see his magnificent view. That's a jerky move. Um, And I'm, I'm sure it depended on the family. As you know, Alicia, I just got back from Newport. Yes. Was it lovely? It is an amazing place. Um, yeah. It's like a time capsule, right, with street after street of homes that were built in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And then all of the Gilded Age palaces, you know, and the cliff walk along the water's edge. It was freezing, <laughs> obviously, because it's winter, but <laughs> fabulous. But of course, when I arrived, I drove straight for the most famous of these palaces, the Breakers, which was constructed in the 1890s by Cornelius Vanderbilt II and his wife Alice. The audio guide that I had included the recollections of a woman who had stayed as a child in the servants' quarters with her mother, who worked in the house. And she mentioned, you know, living way upstairs in a small hot room with a tiny porthole window with a view, but also uh, the joys of running up and down the back staircases and skipping rope outside. And The Breakers, I mean, as we've heard, was used for filming The Gilded Age. Yeah, you'll do a double take when you walk through its billiard room uh, where they shot the scene where George Russell plays pool with Patrick Morris in episode two. And then there's the music room. The Breakers music room amazingly was used for the Russell's ballroom, which we see in this episode. But we'll talk more about this in a moment with Bob Shaw. Yeah, because we want to get back to this group who are having their unauthorized visit to Beechwood, Mrs. Astor's cottage. (laughs) Ward McAllister convinced Mrs. Astor's butler, Hefty, to let them in. But of course, their visit is cut short by the unexpected arrival of Mrs. Astor. Ward McAllister panics and says that they have to, quote, get rid of Mrs. Russell. Yeah, so even though Ward had power, it seems like even he is scared of Mrs. Astor. Everybody is, right? And then during the next 30 seconds, we see Bertha really fall a couple notches down the social pecking order. It's a wild ride. Yes, and I was excited about this scene because did you notice how suddenly chaotic the camera became? Because all throughout Mm. the season, we've seen the camera be very still. Even when it moves, it's on a dolly or a crane, so it's very smooth and it's done on purpose so it's not intrusive. So you're focusing more on the, the characters and the dialogue and the story rather than the visual style. But here, suddenly, the camera is handheld and it moves around quite a lot, which puts us in Bertha's shoes. It makes us feel unmoored as she is feeling, as she's 
unceremoniously dumped out the back. And then the camera even gives us some perspective shots, some POV shots from Bertha's perspective as she sees the, the chickens and, and the, the servants working out there and the camera whip pans from one to another, again, just making us feel so chaotic and, and letting us into how Bertha's feeling that she's, she hasn't quite made it in society yet. Wow, that is so cool. Thank you for this analysis, this technical <laughs> expertise that you're sharing. I was I mean, excited. I didn't even know what a whip pan was. <laughs> now I do. Yeah, but so true. Yeah, I hadn't really realized. I just kind of thought that I was getting dizzy and nervous. But it, <laughs> it's true. There's a shift in perspective. And there is one last Newport sighting that we should point out here. The exterior that they used for Mrs. Astor's house is actually the Wetmore's house, Chateau sur Mer. There you go, Mr. <laughs> Richard Morris Hunt again. Okay, well, let's take a break ourselves. We just need to have a breath of this salty Newport air and calm ourselves down because next we're going to be talking with Danae Benton. She'll tell us all about Peggy's Big Secret and we'll also be talking to production designer Bob Shaw about how he helped to create 1880s Newport. So stay with us. This is the official Gilded Age podcast. Back in a minute. I met Elias in Brooklyn, but my father didn't approve. For him, Elias had no prospects and was uneducated. So when I saw it was hopeless, we left for Philadelphia. By the time my father found us, I was married and pregnant. Are you still married? No. My father bullied Elias into signing a paper saying he'd been married before. Then he got a judge to declare our marriage void. Why would he do that? Did he really prefer you to be an unwed mother? Maybe he wasn't thinking straight. Either way, he brought me home and I was told to forget it ever happened. <laughs> to forget my own child. How could you? I tried for a year or more. But in the end, that's why I went back, to find the midwife. I needed to know more about my boy. I was told she moved to Doylestown, but I couldn't find her there. So I went to the railway station and I met a young lady who lost a ticket. And now I've shocked that same young lady out of her senses. I'm not shocked. I'm sad. And that was Peggy, opening up to Marion about her child, her marriage, and the circumstances that brought Peggy and Marion together in the first place. And now it's our pleasure to welcome to the show Danae Benton, who plays Peggy, and Bob Shaw, the production designer for the series. Welcome to you both. Hi. Thank you for having us. That was my first time hearing the final cut. Oh <laughs> it's so sad. <laughs> yeah, it's so heartbreaking. Danae, what was it? like for you to to play this scene where Peggy opens up about her life? You know, it felt like satisfying and cathartic. It was something that I knew was coming all season and was definitely intimidated by as an actor. Um, but I also felt lucky that it was something that we got to shoot a little later in our process. So I felt like I was also ready. Everyone was ready to get to the bottom of what Peggy had been going through. So it was really satisfying to get to play it 
And by this time, it seems like Peggy has built up enough trust with Marion to be able to confide in her. Yeah. And, you know, her back's kind of against the wall with everything that goes on with Armstrong. And at this point, it's like the stakes are just so high for being a woman with a risque story at this time, even if it's wholesome. There's so much judgment. And so I think she gets to a point where she would rather tell her story before someone else does, especially if it's going to be told with malintent. Mm -hmm. Mm. Danae, we've heard from others who we've interviewed that that you really worked with the writers and historical consultants on the series, like Dr. Erica Armstrong Dunbar, Sonia Warfield, Sally Richardson Whitfield, on on shaping Peggy's character and storyline. During that process, in that process, how did Peggy become more authentic then as, as the series evolved? Yeah, I think what I always say is that the heart of Peggy and the intention of her, I think, was always on the page and in Julian's like earlier intentions. But there were just some specificities of the ways that we got to open up her world with the opportunity to have her work at a Black publishing office that existed instead of a white publishing office. And what that does to show not only these worlds that existed, but that success doesn't only have to happen in white spaces. There were scenes that were added of really getting to see Peggy alone in her own interior life, not just in the white gaze and the male gaze, but just sort of in her own gaze and how powerful that is. Um, And how often we don't realize that we get to see male characters and white characters do that all the time. But in shows, we rarely get to see that. And it felt like a really important opportunity that if we were going to tell this sort of story in the mainstream for one of the first times of this Black elite of this time period, that we even faced some of our own biases and assumptions and just kind of rooted everything out as much as possible. And so it showed up in my costumes. It showed up in some of the scenes with my parents, the scenes with Marion. Every, everything kind of got touched by that. Yeah, you, and also you certainly didn't forgive Marion too quickly, did you? No, that was, I yeah. mean, after the whole Boots incident. It was really important. And Louisa and I were really a part of that conversation and talking about if we wanted them to actually build trust in this series, what would it take for a white woman and a Black woman at that time to trust each other? And our experiences as interracial, with interracial friendships in the 21st century go through those types of um, boundary violations. And so it was really exciting to kind of push to be like, no, let's let this be a real fracture because when and if they come back together, then we can really trust that bond. Well, Bob Shaw, let's bring you in because the authenticity also shows up with your production designs. Can you tell us about how you how you approached creating these really opulent houses that would show the wealth of the characters, but at the same time not detract from the audience's focus on the dialogue and the storyline? Part of it was having to pare down the amount of detail that that there would be. As detailed as the sets are, I always tell everyone that in the Brook House, we have one painting hung over top of another. In reality, there would be four, there'd be four paintings high in a, in a drawing room. And as many patterns as we have in the same room, we have one pattern on the carpet, another pattern on the drapes, and another pattern on some of the furniture. There was even more. So I always say that the level of detail you have to kind of calibrate it for contemporary eyes because we want to make the statement that the old money was very busy, very layered, doilies on everything, a statue, every place you could put one. But if we went to the absolute authentic level, it'd be too much and your eyes wouldn't know where to look. Even though we're invested in getting the environment right, 
everybody at every level of this production, costumes, everyone is more concerned about story than anything else. Yeah, and that level of detail exists in the servants' quarters as well, like the the room that Peggy sleeps in at the Van Rynes. How did you want to use the design to show that relationship between the upstairs and the downstairs? I had the good fortune of meeting with an architectural historian at Newport before I even really started designing anything. And I got to see some places that aren't on tour. And uh, you can take the servants' tour at the Elms in, in Newport, which is very, very popular. But by the time the Elms was built, they were having to make the quarters a little more livable to attract staff because they started having a hard time getting people. But if you go to Marble House, the stairway in the servants' quarters is so narrow, uh, your shoulders barely can can make it through. So the the room is is really pretty much the appropriate size. It could even be a little smaller, to be real. But it's it's just scale. The scale of the hallways would even have been a little narrower than ours. And the room would be even smaller. Hmm. And you bring up the elms too. And we we've heard that the the kitchen at the Russell House, the kitchen scene was shot, if I'm correct here, at the elms in the elms kitchen. And there is such a difference when you just look at the look and feel of the two houses' kitchens, right? The kitchen at the Van Ryn House is kind of warm and cozy. I mean, in the, in this episode, we see Mrs. Bauer like I don't know, rolling out some dough or doing something. I just wanted to kind of be in there. Um, And the kitchen across the street at the Russell House, shot at the Elms, on the other hand, is like, it seems like a factory. I mean, it's polished and spotless and big, and it doesn't have the same vibe. How, what went into creating those two looks? Well, it was harder to find research on the uh, Van Ryan Brook House because people just didn't take pictures of those kitchens. Some of it's sort of conjecture because I'd read accounts that there was a place for them to eat, and I'd read that some of the servants would be uh, sleeping on the on that level. Although we didn't necessarily play it that way, because normally it was the cook who slept on the ground floor because um, they had to get up to light the oven. But we went to a real location for the uh, the Russell House. It's just that everything was covered in tile, even even the ceiling is covered in tile, so it ends up looking like a laboratory or or a factory, mm-hmm. as you said. It's it's just very clinical and very, very impersonal. And Danae, for you, you know, we've heard from other actors what the detail was like on the sets. How impressed were you with the production design? And uh, what did you note that perhaps we miss as viewers? I mean, every part of Bob's design, the props team, the set deck team did, I don't know, three quarters of our acting work for us. You really felt so submerged in this world. And one of the moments that was the most striking for me was going to the Scott house for the first time and walking in and not only just seeing this home, but this seeing all of these pictures of Black families from this time that were real pictures. And I, me, Danae, I grew up in a middle to upper middle class Black family. And it is just my reflection of my story is not necessarily something that I see in a lot of film and TV of anything that was made before the 80s or 90s. And so to see like my own lineage on these tables of these family pictures was astounding to me and that level of detail. And books that were like, oh, this is a prop book and I'd open it. And it was a first edition copy of Frederick Douglass's autobiography. It was kind of chilling. And so to have those lines of my dad being like, where are you sleeping? And to go to Peggy's room in the Van Ryan house versus the house that she grew up in, it really 
created that dichotomy for me where I'm like, oh, her parents probably would be like, do you understand what we worked for to offer you this space? And (laughs) you want to go live here because you think it has something to offer that we can't. And so that kind of nuance was pretty priceless. Everything just sort of felt like it was living and breathing. It was kind of, it was invaluable. So thank you, Bob. I haven't gotten to say that to you. (laughs) (laughs) But it's, it's actually hard to really distinguish between the sets and the actual homes. I mean... When you're inside the Van Ryan house, for example, I mean, I thought that was a real home, that you were shooting on location, but that was a set. You created that set, right? It was based on a lot of different houses uh, because their home would have been there for 20 or more years before the Russells built their home. So a lot of it was based on, you know, the Salmagundi Club on Fifth Avenue. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. That's the last uh, single family home still on Fifth Avenue. It's the last one, and it's an arts club now. Uh, one of our uh, our set designers went and measured every square inch of it, and um, the moldings are copied from the Samagundi Club. They're sort of a rope molding. And originally, though, we had thought of having painted woodwork in the Brook House because that would have been appropriate to the period that it was built. And sometimes you just have to go with what feels right for the scene instead of what is 100% historically accurate. And it felt so much warmer, and it felt so much more like they'd lived there for years, seeing this darker, warmer environment. That's amazing, because when you walk up into the Salmagundi Club, you've got the staircase as well on the left, and you have the rooms on the right. That's like the Van Ryan house. Well, Danae, for you, what kind of research did you have to do in order to play Peggy? I know you had this personal input on the character, but who were the historical figures you looked to? Um, I was given two books at the beginning of production by Michael and Erica and Julian, and one was called Black Gotham. We both read that one. So good. Oh, my God. It's amazing. (laughs) It's It's like a treasure treasure treasure. trove. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Jinx. But Carla Peterson, for the listeners who don't know, she's a historian who traced back her own family line to the Black elite of this time period. And so, you know, Arthur Scott is based on Philip White, who's in that book, who was a Black man who owned pharmacies at that time. And they write about his daughter's sort of like coming out ball that she would have had. It was so thrilling to see this like factual history on the page and the history of Brooklyn and lower Manhattan. And then the other book I was given, it's like a collection of writings from Black women authors of the 1800s. And it's everything from poetry to political essays to short stories to play acts. And and so obviously Peggy starts more as a fiction writer and in some original scripts, she talks about the precedents with like Julia C. Collins, who was like the first Black woman to publish a novel, I think in the 1850s. And then it was cool to work with Erica and Julia. And as she starts working at the Globe, she starts becoming more of a political writer. And we were able to pull from like Ida B. Wells and those different types of um, precedents. Yeah, just not as widely known, these mm-hmm. these writers as their white counterparts. Yeah, and also just these different moments where history kind of gets erased or whitewashed intentionally. And that was another really cool opportunity of the show. And I think of media in general, is we have the opportunity to tell a lot of stories that for different reasons, politically don't make it into our history books. Yeah. And recreate a world that actually existed that we just haven't been taught. Yeah. And that sort of has been erased intentionally. And we get to be a part of that resistance of telling the truth, which is really powerful. 
That's amazing. Bob, I would like to turn the conversation for a moment. Um, we'll be coming back to New York and to Peggy's story, but for a moment up to Newport, because in this episode, we're really going between the two the two cities, and we see that you really filmed all over Newport using exteriors and interiors, filming both scenes that actually take place in Newport, like the McAllister's Cottage in this episode and the International Tennis Hall of Fame, which stands in for the casino scene, which is at the casino. But Newport was also used for many scenes that are supposed to take place elsewhere, like um, in New York and also Dansville. I'm really curious, what was it like to work so closely with Newport? And where did you even, where did you even begin? It was just a gift to be able to do these things in Newport. But so much of it is Newport, but it's representing New York. The, the thing that's kind of funny is the Chateau sur Mer, which is mm-hmm. built from, in the 1850s was appropriate to more of our story than some of the later mansions. So even within the Chateau sur Mer, we have Agnes's bedroom is in the Chateau sur Mer. Mrs. Morris's bedroom is in the oh. Chateau sur Mer. Her husband's bedroom is in the Chateau. Mamie Fish's New York dining room is in the Chateau. Um, oh. The rooming house is in the Chateau. <laughs> uh, there are no rooms left in the Chateau for us to for us to film. We've, there's one ballroom, uh, but other than that, we filmed every square inch. But it was representing five different places, I think. Yeah, Bob. You know, I've I've read that you are a, a New York City history buff. Would you say through your experience at Newport, you became more interested in the history of that city? Even more so. It definitely is. I say you look at the history, and you're sort of psychoanalyzing a culture. And just things about the way people lived. That's the hardest thing to convey. I mean, um, when you talk about Peggy's storyline and what she tells Marion, whatever it would mean telling that same story today, it's like 10, 20 times to tell a story like that at that time period. And you try to have the choices you make about the environment sort of convey that about how people live. Hmm. While so many of the characters are up in Newport, Peggy, of course, is back in New York. Although, Danae, I did find a photo on Instagram of you and the whole gang having a blast up in Newport, dining outside. It really looked great. What was Peggy doing up in Newport? I'm curious, also, what your impressions were of the city while you were up there? Yeah, I mean, we used some Newport spaces for the Dansville scenes. And so it wasn't technically Newport, but I got to experience the beauty of the beach and the cottages the you know the tiny little cottages that are (laughs) bigger than the net (laughs) quote yeah quote unquote exactly and then you know back in new york peggy decides to leave the van ryan house because armstrong has read her personal letter peggy tells ada and agnes her story but it's armstrong that's going to stay so it's time for peggy and agnes to say goodbye take a listen really miss ada's right It ought to be Armstrong who goes. Seems very feeble on my part. I couldn't let you do that. It would be too disruptive. I'll be just fine. I hope we can end on good terms. Of course. I remain very grateful for the time you've let me spend in this house. You're an impressive young woman. Not everyone will support your ambitions, to say the least of it. But you are strong enough to manage that. Thank you. I'll try to be. And now you'd better go if you were to catch the last ferry. Goodbye, Mrs. Van Rye. Goodbye, Miss Scott. And may God bless you. 
yeah, Danae, what do you make of this relationship between Peggy and Agnes? Because, I mean, it seems like through Peggy, we get to see a softer side to Agnes. Yeah, it was something we all talked about a lot. I think it walks this fine line of um, them being two women who've been through a lot and you find out that Agnes also lost children. And um, I think there's a fortitude that she already connects to in Peggy. And then I think also Peggy understands the nuance of the politics of respectability that she has to navigate the world through. And that because, you know, she quote unquote speaks the right way and dresses the right way and all of these things, she is able to get past this first layer of what would probably be Agnes's prejudice to, you know, Agnes's sort of surprised by her abilities, which is rooted in a type of racism, but does allow for them to see one another in a different way. And, um, for Agnes to really see that and value Peggy's skill set. And I think um, sort of who Peggy is gets summed up in a line earlier in the season where she says, you have a good heart, but I run my own life. And I think the space that Peggy does have, she gets to make choices that say, okay, it's not a home that I love, but I do have a home where I can go find a ground to stand on and be supported. And it allows for her relationship with Agnes to not be one of desperation, but one of some mutual respect. And I I think it's a really cool nuance to show. And with Agnes's relationship and Marion's relationship with Peggy, we really tried to thread this needle of there not being this sort of like white hero, white savior narrative. Peggy has a skill that is really valued. And through that skill, some humanity actually gets to happen between them all. Yeah, as a viewer, though, you're watching this episode being like, oh, it should be Armstrong leaving. But I guess that wouldn't be authentic to what would actually happen at the time. No, not at all. All of those years they put in retraining a lady's maid was like losing your spouse, you know, for Agnes at this point in her life. And so we have these moments where we see Peggy and Agnes touch hands. And it should be Armstrong who goes, and it is feeble of her, and Peggy has somewhere else to go, and she gets to continue on this path of hers and doesn't have to stay in a space where that kind of tension would be there. And so I think that it's sort of mature on both of their parts to respect the boundary and move along in a way that I think was kind of powerful to show. I didn't know that Peggy was going to leave. I didn't necessarily expect that plot point, Mm -hmm. and it resonated with me. Yeah, it's like all those things can be true at the same time. Exactly. You know, exactly. And, and we just have to deal with it. Yes. And also, Peggy's skill that you were just talking about, her skill of writing, has been influenced and changed and developed because of her time at the Van Ryn house, mm. right? T. Thomas Fortune even mentions to her, well, yeah, not everybody has access to Clara Barton. Yeah. So there is something symbiotic happening there, too. Of course. Yeah, Peggy definitely takes these opportunities in um, these spaces that most Black women were not granted access to at all. And through this relationship with Marion, they they definitely have a symbiosis in what they provide for each other. Marion, I think, sees a kind of like fire in Peggy that she craves. And I think that they support each other's dreams in that way, in a way that I think is really special. Yeah, Bob, what was your take on this scene where Armstrong stays and, and Peggy leaves? That the truth isn't always pretty, but that's what would have happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The, the truth could be even uglier. The truth could be, well, I don't believe Peggy. You know, yeah. there mm-hmm. are a lot of different levels. So I thought it was the way it should have gone. 
And when it comes to this idea of authenticity, uh, Bob, sometimes for your work, you have to use a little of the old TV magic because not everything is there like Newport. So what is the balance between using practical sets and visual effects? Is it always preferable for you to use practical where you can and then visual effects when necessary? Wherever possible, you, you want to uh, have things be real or have built something that seems real. But this was just on such a scale that it, it wasn't even feasible. And um, even the choice of setting the Russell Mansion on 61st Street, it was just high enough to have them on Central Park in one direction. So we could have a direction that was real and not have to have VFX extension in both directions. Because if, if we had moved them down into the 50s or something like that, everywhere you looked would have been manufactured. So we, we moved them up a little bit further geographically than they might have been at the time period. Oh, interesting. And then you have locations like I was reading, you know, about George Russell's office where the doorway was real, but the rest was visual effects. George Russell's office was a funny one because it was going to require a lot of visual effects to have a view of downtown Manhattan out the windows that were on two different planes. So we actually built the wall of a, the building that would have been across the across the way. So one window was special effects and the other had this like 100 foot by 20 foot wall that was the <laughs> side, of a, the side of, a, of, a, of an office building that we put outside the window just not to have to do visual effects. And what about on the back lot where you built the exteriors of the Van Ryn house and the Russell house? Were those actual entrances? People seem to be walking in through the doors. Where are they walking into? There's a part of the practical exterior set that duplicates. Um, there's like a vestibule that's duplicated on both places. So the interior set has the vestibule, and then we have the same vestibule like on the Van Ryn house so that we can sort of get them out the door. So we sort of duplicated that. I'm curious also where you went for inspiration for these houses. Were you looking at like the Carnegie Mansion, the Frick, Mrs. Astor with A.T. Stewart across 34th Street? It was a, a lot of different things. The first the first house that Julian told me he responded to was the Duke House, which I thought was substantially later than our period. Mm -hmm. And then you look at um, Alva Vanderbilt's uh, Petit Chateau, which seemed like it would be right. And Michael Engler said, oh, I don't want turrets. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so like the courtyard where you can drive up with your coach is, is taken from the Carnegie mansion. Um, the columns on, on the front are taken from the Sloan mansion. Um, the general size is taken from the Duke mansion. Um, it's, it's, it's a collage. And we were think, saying about the collage that happens with this episode um, with Bertha in Mrs. Astor's house. Her sort of trip through Beechwood is several different locations. Yes, yes. She walks, she pulls up in front of the Chateau sur Mer. She goes into Belcour. They push her like down the staircase practically. And then she goes, <laughs> through, she goes through the kitchens of Marble House and then comes back out the back of the Chateau. Oh my gosh. Three locations, four <laughs> places, but three locations. Must be hard to keep them all straight in your head or, or just figure out what's going to happen when. You have, you have to have a kind of Rubik's Cube in your head. <laughs> and, um, it's funny because I always forget when I come back and talk to, you know, to the people in the art department, like our amazing set decorator, Regina Graves or Larry or, or Laura, our art directors. And I've seen the things and I'm just, I'm trying to describe it and trying to be clear and they haven't been there yet. And I mean, one of the things that confused everybody to no end was that George Russell's New York bedroom 
is Consuelo Vanderbilt's bedroom in Marble House. And people would get confused of what was New York and what was New York for Newport and what, what was Newport for New York. And yeah. And I would have it in my head because I've been to all the places and, and trying to describe it. It's it's very hard to be clear. <laughs> but also like so appropriate, you know, that they would be in Alva's Newport place, that the Russells would be shooting in Alva's. You know, it's somehow on a meta level, it makes sense. <laughs> and and we also know that the ballroom of the Russell's house was shot in the Breakers music room. I'm curious to shoot something in a larger room like that, were you disguising elements of the house so that the audience wouldn't know that that is necessarily the Breakers? We had to make sure that you didn't see out into the great entry hall of the Breakers because it could not be in some other place around the corner of the Russell Mansion. But when I first interviewed for the job, um, even before I had the job, I said, well, I wouldn't recommend that you build a ballroom unless you're going to have a ball every episode. And... Um, but we went through several different choices of what we were going to use for the ball. Originally, we were going to have used a ballroom in Ochre Court, which is not the Preservation Society. And COVID, because it's a school, made that no longer available to us. And eventually, we decided to use the music room at the Breakers. And by some strange coincidence, when I was doing the dining room of the Russell House, um, I sort of borrowed, borrowed. Um, the detail <laughs> of the columns that had the sconces mounted to them just for the dining room. But when, when that choice was made, we did not know we were going to be using the music room um, mm. breakers, which has the same detail and sort of worked out because it helped make it seem like it was part of the Russell house, but it was purely an accident. I had no idea when we, when we designed the columns and those sconces that we were going to end up at the breakers. And Danae, for you, we were talking about how special it is for an actor to be in a location where you have so much detail and all the sets. But what about the times when you don't? Like I'm thinking about the ferry terminal at the, in episode one. What oh, were you looking yeah. at when you were looking out at the sea? It's incredible the fact that anyone kept track of all me and Louisa would say, it's like, oh my God, I'm so happy it's not my job to actually make any of this work <laughs> <laughs> because it's sort of masterful. But I think for the fairy scene, we were just looking at like a silver pole with like a, a <laughs> big green screen and like a tennis ball with an X on it for the ship. <laughs> and then for the train, the train station scene where she and I meet for the first time, they built this incredible mm -hmm. platform. But then the train itself was green screen. And it's crazy because now when I watch the show, I know we weren't actually looking at ships in water. Mm -hmm. But it looks like we are really looking at ships and water and the elements of they sort of added in some rain or wet wet the deck of the the things that were built. It was it sort of reminds me of what you said, Tom, about holding the tension of everything, even with these relationships that in the interracial relationships, it's not about erasing different parts, but just holding the tension. And I feel very similarly about mm -hmm. our sets and how all these worlds what's completely accurate, what's stretched a little, what's green screen, what's mm -hmm. built, and we all hold this tension to create a world that I think feels really tangible. I didn't realize that wasn't a real train pulling into the station. Was it part, Bob, was it like the beginning? We just had the door. All the we, door? we had a piece that was about six feet wide, yeah. and, uh, and it was just the door to get onto the train. 
helpful. It does help yeah. to be theater actors. You know, half the time we're like looking at our brightest dreams and our mother, and we're actually looking at a theater full of, you know, a thousand people. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. You have to have that imagination. Exactly. Exactly. So this is all like <laughs> child's play. Well, Danae, I wanted to turn to the, the tension in the relationship that Peggy has with her parents. Uh, what was it like for you to get to create this complex dynamic with Audra McDonald and John Douglas Thompson. The two of them have, I mean, every actor on the show has made me a better actor. And the intimate scenes that I got to shoot with Audra and John were so formative for me. Also, um, just getting to look into like the nuance of the different tensions and pressures of Black family life at any time, but especially a family that's sort of traversing a different type of socioeconomic status than maybe the families that came before them were and just the different tension that it creates of like wanting to keep your child safe and thinking excellence is the only thing that keeps them safe. And then in trying to hold on so tight to protect them, you can kind of choke the life out of them. I think it's something that many, I just think it's something that many black families relate to the kind of tightrope between like you fought for my freedom, but also please let me be free. Mm -hmm. And the way patriarchy goes into her home and the bond we get to see between Dorothy and Peggy, between like moments where their voices were silenced and when they kind of decide to take matters into their own hands. And I just thought in what I loved about John and Audra is I just think it would have been so easy to make Arthur a villain and John's warmth like you feel his love and why he really, this is, you know, it's life and death at this time. It's life and death now, but at this time, really a wrong step could really just be catastrophic. And so there were scenes where I came in thinking I was going to be like strong, mad Peggy. And then John would soften me with his performance and I would be like, oh God, this is so hard, you know? And Audra the nuances of her finding her strength as the woman of this house while also navigating um, the power dynamic between her and her husband. I just thought that it was a version of like Black interiority that felt really sacred and powerful to see on screen with them. And we were talking to Audra about the idea of excellence and the kind of pressure and responsibility she feels as a Black woman in this industry. And I know that you have, you know, put so much of your personal ideas and thoughts into Peggy. So how much responsibility and protection do you feel over this role, particularly because it is something we don't normally see on screen? Yeah, I felt fervently protective. You know, there were nights where I was like, I can't sleep till I send this email. You know, I just felt like not only is it honoring an ancestor whose story has been marginalized, I think it's really important for for the Black women who watch this show to really, to see the lineage that is often erased. You know, my mom was telling me that she was on a text thread with her and some of her other like Black professional women friends. And they were like, oh my gosh, like they, Danae advocated for our story. Like this is, this is us on that screen. And, and it's really, I felt an incredible amount of responsibility with that. And I think it's important to be able to show space for that double-edged sword of excellence and the idea that you shouldn't have to prove your humanity with, you know, how well you can do something. And I think that getting to see Peggy choose a different path than what her parents want for her, we get to see her be like, I don't, I don't need to prove my humanity to you. Like I get to be an arbiter of my own freedom because I exist. And that being like another step in liberation of like maybe the generation before couldn't see that, but she can. And I think that story kind of repeats itself for many of us. That's beautiful. 
And Audra is somebody who you looked up to as a child, right? What was it like to get to work together and to play her daughter? I think it is a gift that will keep astounding me. I will probably tell my grandchildren about it. It is like, you know, there were so many moments in my coming of age. And even when I was young, right out of college and in the industry, I where you just feel like, oh my God, what I dream isn't going to be possible. There's not going to be space for someone like me, all of the internalized like oppressions. And then you see someone and there are moments where you just get on YouTube and you watch Andra sing and you're like, okay, maybe this is possible. And <laughs> I remember I, it was during Tony season, the year I was nominated and I, she was at an event and I chickened out and I didn't go introduce myself. And I remember I called my mom like crying. I was like, I missed my chance to meet Audra. I'm never going to meet her. This was my one shot. And I was like so torn apart. And little did I know that four years later, I would get to be crying to her as my mom and not just to my mom. And so it's pretty, it's full circle in some powerful ways. Mm. That is beautiful. Well, this has been really fun. Danae Benton and Bob Shaw, thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you, guys. Thank you for having us. Wow, Tom, that was Bob Shaw and Danae Benton. And I just have to give Danae so much credit for the amount of thought that she put into Peggy. I mean, she Mm -hmm. shaped this role. She really helped it to come to life. And you could, you could hear it, couldn't you, during our interview, how much she cares about this. Absolutely, yeah. How she really, she fought for that role, you know, and to, to tell that story that so often gets overlooked. Well, it was great talking to Danae and to Bob and to hearing some more of those details. I especially liked knowing that up at, up at Newport, Chateau sur Mer was used for so many different locations, even more than you and I knew about. Now we know that Aunt Agnes's <laughs> bedroom is in Chateau sur Mer and, uh, and Anne Morris's too. Amazing. That's right. They, sh- they should do a Gilded Age tour there. You should lead it. Tom. I have a feeling it's on the books, Alicia. Well, <laughs> please join us again for another episode of the official Gilded Age podcast, because next week we will have more interviews with the cast and crew. Yes, it's our final episode, no. Tom. Can you believe it? I don't it? want that to I be the case. To end. No. I know. And we are going out with a bang, though, because we'll be talking to several key crew members about what it takes to produce a period piece to this scale. And we'll be meeting Mrs. Astor herself, Donna Murphy. I'm nervous, Alicia. Me too. (laughs) So don't forget to watch the final episode of The Gilded Age, airing Monday on HBO and HBO Max. And then tune in to our final podcast episode. Bye-bye. Bye. Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Aniello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max.